The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com I'm Neil Zacharias and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. As consumers learn more about how food is directly tied to their health as well as the health of the planet, they are shifting away from meat and dairy and seeking better options. The rapid growth of the plant-based food sector is indicative of this trend. The plant-based food sector has topped 5 billion in sales just in the US, and there seems to be a new company popping up every week with innovative dairy and meat replacers. Given that many of these new products pose a threat to the well-established industrial meat and dairy industries, there has been a significant amount of backlash against companies making plant-based products. That's where my guest Michelle Simon comes in. Michelle is the executive director of the Plant-Based Foods Association, a trade group with over 80 members whose goal is to level the playing field for plant-based food. Michelle is a public health lawyer who has been researching and writing about the food industry and the politics of food since 1996. So she knows the ins and outs of the tactics used by the meat and dairy lobby to deter competition. In our chat, we discuss the challenges facing plant-based food producers from educating consumers to food labeling laws that prohibit dairy-free products from calling themselves milk or cheese. More importantly, we cover what Michelle and the Plant-Based Foods Association are doing to combat these issues and further the success of companies producing healthy, sustainable plant-based foods. Increasingly, we're seeing that the future of food is plant-based, so keep listening to hear how Michelle intends to help make that possible. I'm here with Michelle Simon from the Plant-Based Foods Association. Michelle, thanks so much for being on the Eat for the Planet podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, you know, I was, when we started One Green Planet back in 2013, I had a very simple and somewhat naive goal. My goal was that we wanted to use the power of online media to try and convince people to make food choices that are better for the environment, more specifically to choose more plant-based foods. And my idea was as people choose to eat more plant-based, the demand for those foods would go up and hopefully the industry would respond by creating better products 
and um, meeting that rising demand. And this would then lead to the exponential rise in the consumption and the production of plant-based foods. And we could hopefully transform the food industry from the inside out and save the planet. Well, at least that was the plan. Here we are around four years later. And um, looking back, I think that goal wasn't so simple or naive after all. Um, and the reason I bring this up is because the amazing work that you're doing is proof that something real is happening at the moment. The demand for plant-based foods is on the rise. Consumers want more of that. And there is this new industry rising that's providing better products, more innovative products to consumers. So I want to start off with when was it that you first noticed this trend and and what were your initial thoughts and ideas around what was happening? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, I've um, spent some 20 years now in the food movement and, and like you have had similar ideas about how to, uh, you know, help people to shift more towards a plant-based diet for all the reasons we know that that's necessary and the best thing to do. And, you know, it's it's been a challenge in a number of ways. And what I have found is that it's really about shaping the environment that people live in, right? That it's not just a matter of educating people one by one about all the reasons why, that we really have to make it easier for people. And that's, you know, my background is in public health. So I've really worked to try and shift public policy in a way to help make healthier choices easier for people. And, you know, just as a advocate working in collaboration with nonprofits and other, you know, great people who are passionate about this, I it, it was very challenging to um, to get this work done in a way that we know needs to be done to make a big impact. And um, it wasn't really until a few years ago that I saw that the plant-based foods industry was starting to take a shift and that, you know, um, prior to that time, it had really been mostly in a niche market. So, you know, the meat and dairy alternatives that have been on the market for a long time were mostly serving vegetarians and vegans and, you know, some others here and there. But but we really started to see this industry turn towards the mainstream. At least I started to notice it. And somewhat because of some newer companies that were coming on the scene, sort of the next generation, if you will, of plant-based food companies who really took this opportunity to, to go mainstream with their products and not just focus on, on the niche market. And that was when I started to, you know, I saw this trend and I saw this shift happening in consumer interest and realized, okay, the time has come to really help this industry band together, form a collective voice in policymaking and in other arenas to help um, lift this effort up in a way that really can't be done by any one individual company. Yeah, I mean, I think I remember back in the year 2015, I was at the Natural Foods Expo, Expo West at, in Anaheim in California. And uh, I think that was the first time that I became really acutely aware that this was no longer just something small. Because almost every second vendor that I saw at that um, on the Expo floor on the, on the, uh, at Expo West were offering plant-based products. And I sat in at some panels and people were talking about how the paleo and gluten-free things were trends, but plant-based was one thing that was here to stay. And it really left me with the sense that there was a real shift starting to happen, I'm at least the early stages of it. 
And ironically, I mean, I don't know if you remember this. I think that's around the same time you were starting to have conversations with some of the food companies about putting together some sort of a plant-based food association. I remember one of them mentioning that to me. Right. Right. Yes. I I certainly remember it well because that that event, Expo West 2015, was the first time that I held this sort of, uh, I don't want to say secret meeting, but it was before, you know, we had launched, obviously, and it was the first time I was able to pull together. There were some 12 or uh, so companies, leaders in the room, and, you know, I presented this idea, and, you know, the fact that they all came, first of all, was a pretty good sign. I didn't know most of them. You know, I reached out via LinkedIn and through my networks and so forth, and just that, you know, they all came to this meeting on, you know, on a morning when they could have been meeting with buyers and, and other business partners, they saw that this was a good idea. And so it was it was really an important moment in the evolution of this industry to start to come together and agree that we are more, you know, we are stronger together and need this collective voice. So yes, that was, um, you know, not the beginning of my effort, but a, but a really important step. And then it was through um, the rest of that year where I did a variety of other activities and networking and um, prodding of certain industry leaders, you know, when it finally came together exactly one year later when we formally launched at Expo West in 2016. Yeah, so how were those initial conversations with uh, some of these leaders of the industry? How did they respond to what you were proposing and what did they see as being the value proposition of Mm -hmm. putting together a trade association focused on what is, you know, at least at that time and at the moment also a sub-segment of the natural foods industry? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I think a couple of things. You know, there are some companies that are really, you know, pushing the envelope and, and understand the important role that policy plays in being able to label their foods a certain way. You know, a good example being Bioko's Kitchen. And that company was having a challenge in California with the state regulators here around not being able to use the word cheese. And, you know, this is a, a cashew-based product that uses traditional cheese-making techniques, very much has the familiar texture and taste of certain types of cheeses and so forth, and yet this company can't use that word cheese because California says no. And um, so it was actually that um, learning about that company's challenge, and of course they were in startup mode. This was actually back in late 2014 that I learned about this situation, and I realized, well, you know, as a startup company, they couldn't fight this. And that's what trade groups do. They fight stupid laws on behalf of their members. And so that was actually my first, you know, and I had spent much of my career shining a light on the dark side of what trade groups do to undermine public policy. And I realized, well, you know, the concept of of a trade group of collective action, there's nothing wrong with that. It's actually a very powerful thing. It just needed to be put to work on behalf of the right companies, companies like Miyoko's Kitchen that is really, you know, really trying to change things for the better. So, you know, that's one conversation, you know, how we can shift policy in a way to support these companies that are really trying to do the right thing and not get in their way. And then other conversations were more about the more direct business case. So companies that might, you know, be, they're in the retail sector, but they're struggling for more room on the shelf. And so I hear stories about, you know, a company that introduces a new product line and when they go to the retailer, 
you know, to introduce it to them, the conversation is, okay, well, which of your other products do you want us to take off the shelf, or which of your competitors' products should we take off the shelf? You know, it's this fight over very limited shelf space, and it's very frustrating, you know, from a company perspective and, you know, as an industry that wants to grow to be fighting over, you know, inches of shelf space when by comparison, you know, the meat aisle is an entire back of the store, you know, the cheese aisle is endless, et cetera. So those are other conversations and other motivations um, of companies that see the potential value in, you know, a, a collective action so that it's not just one company saying, oh, please put my brand on the shelf, but rather an entire industry coming together and say, talking to a retailer and saying, this is the future. This is where consumers are heading. Here's the data to back it up. Here's why you need to make more room. And obviously there's a business case for it, let alone all the wonderful social reasons we know that this change needs to be happening. Yeah. And in terms of, um, you know, so maybe if you can just break down what it is that the Plant-Based Foods Association offers its members, it sounds like you have a mix of uh, early stage food startups to more established brands that have been around. Some of them have been around for decades. Uh, And they primarily provide plant-based products or at least have some plant-based products. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about who your membership base is and what are the kind of big areas of focus that you have on behalf of them. Sure. So the basic um, idea, of course, is is to support this growing industry. And, And you're absolutely right. We have some established brands combined with a lot of early stage startup companies. And, you know, that is part of the um, the value and the excitement of the community that we are building in that we have this very supportive group of companies. We have a, a very um, strong mentorship program. So we pair up early stage leaders with their um, more experienced counterparts so that they can gain the value of, of that experience. And so that's just one aspect of the work, membership support, giving our members whatever they need in terms of um, resources, others with more experience, answering their questions, et cetera. And then uh, the other component that's you know top of mind is policy. So as I mentioned earlier, we have challenges around how these products are labeled. Right now we're on the defense um, with the, the milk lobby is attacking plant-based dairy alternatives with the Dairy Pride Act. And so that's been our main policy agenda in Washington right now. And then the third big area is what we call consumer access. And so that goes to the issue we were speaking of earlier in trying to educate retailers about the opportunity for expanding shelf space for plant-based foods, as well as um, doing outreach to other uh, gatekeepers like such as food service operators in college university dining. So um, those are the main three areas. And of course, there's you know um, media to support that work and, and so forth. But mostly we're trying to support our members any way we can, um, have a collective voice in policymaking. We have a, a lobbyist working on our behalf in Washington and then showing up the um, educational component and outreach to food service and retailers. Right. And, you know, I'd, before we get into I'd love to obviously talk more about um, what's happening with the Dairy Pride Act and all the labeling challenges that some of the companies in the space are facing. But before we get into that, I know you mentioned that you spent your career as a public health lawyer. 
you've been a vocal critic of uh, politics in food and the practices in the food industry that are um, not only harming the planet, but also harming people's health. How has that been for you personally in the last uh, year or so since you got started with the Plant-Based Food Association, Foods Association, where now you are working on behalf of a better subsegment of the industry and, and, and hoping to use your expertise and the combined efforts of your membership base to perhaps transform this industry from the inside out. How's that experience personally been for you shifting from, as you put it, the dark side to um, now trying to fight for good in the food industry? Yeah, it's actually been a, a, a really wonderful and um, transition for me. And, um, you know, some people have asked me, am I, you know, is this the revolving door or, you know, some words to that effect. But, um, you know, the way I think about it is, look, I, I said I've been an advocate for for healthier eating my whole career, and I feel like I'm what I'm doing now is really not that different. It just happens to be on behalf of a sector of the food industry that agrees with me, as opposed to fighting the the ones that are really undermining our food system. And so, you know, it's it's really simply shifting. Um, who I'm advocating on behalf of, in a sense, in the terms of representing this particular industry, but my overarching goal to create a healthier food system, you know, for public health on the planet and for animals remains the same. And so it's it's pretty exciting in that regard. I mean, you know, um, and also I feel like this is one part of the solution. Obviously, it's not everything. We need we also need people to um, shift their diets in, in healthier ways in, in a number of ways. Um, but this is one part of the solution. So these companies that are providing, you know, better meat and dairy alternatives for people who are seeking them out is, is a, I think, a critical component to getting people to shift away from meat and dairy. You know, I'm also in favor of people eating more fruits and vegetables, and I don't happen to work for that lobby right now, but we are working in collaboration with those types of groups. So, you know, I think the, um, the transition has been smooth, and um, and also that I am able to tap into the knowledge that I've gained over the years of how trade groups work and, again, you know, put that to work um, for the right part of the food industry. And I also just add the really um, most, I guess, satisfying and exciting shift that's happened is now some of the um, very food companies that I called out in, in my previous work are coming around to um, seeing this monumental shift that's happening and consumer tastes and don't want to be left out of that, you know, economic equation. And um, so I'm having some interesting conversations with companies that, you know, never would have thought I would be (laughs) talking to them about how we can work together. So, you know, that obviously is um, very satisfying to me to see these companies kind of get on board with the shift that's happening. Yeah, I mean, there's no, I think there's always no better way to to bring about change than by focusing on positives. And while the journey may seem longer initially, I think luckily, at least in this space, we seem to be, uh, we seem to be making progress in the right, and we're definitely moving ahead in the right direction versus a few years ago when it seemed almost unthinkable that some of these bigger companies would firstly have products in this subsector, secondly, or be interested in investing or partnering with companies 
in the subsector because it felt like a niche and it felt like it was only for a small subsegment of the population, which obviously right. is no longer the case. Um, so I think that's fascinating. So let's just talk about, you know, let's get into what's happening in the plant-based food industry. Obviously, it's a very exciting space. In this podcast, we've covered that in a number of episodes about the potential of certain segments of the space, whether it's non-dairy beverages or the alternative uh, protein market, plant-based proteins, and specifically in plant-based meats. Um, I know you've done some, you've collaborated with Spins to do some some market research on this, and maybe if you can give us a better sense of where the market stands right now, and why is it that um, big food companies that, as I said, traditionally would not have been interested in a in this quote unquote vegan food space uh, are now uh, are now really kind of excited about the opportunities here. So maybe more about the market sector, what are the segments that are trending upward, and what the mm-hmm. overall economic value is. Sure. Well, um, there's no question that the you know, what we're seeing this shift that we've been talking about is is coming from a combination of just consumer awareness in general, you know, the work that we've all been doing for a long time to raise awareness uh, about, you know, the problems of our current way of eating and that many consumers are listening and hearing that. And, of course, we're seeing a generational shift as well. No question that um, it's not just younger people, though. I think it's important to note that, you know, older people are concerned about their health. Um, Younger people may be more concerned about the environment, but there is just this growing awareness among consumers. And so that's how to drive this um, shift over to plant-based. And then at the same time, we have, you know, companies, some that have been around a while, but also a lot of newer companies that are are really offering more innovative, interesting, good-tasting foods for people to try, experiment with, et cetera. So it's just really, um, you know, no longer is it just sort of the the tofu swimming in water at the um, neighborhood health food store, right? It's it's much more interesting than that. The tofu's even gotten a lot better right. um, in addition to all other forms of meat alternatives and uh, dairy alternatives out there. So, um, so what we're seeing is in terms of, you know, the main categories that we think of um, and how we at the Plant-Based Food Association define plant-based is looking at the, the meat alternatives, the the milk substitutes, and then other forms of dairy alternatives. And obviously plant-based can mean a lot more than that, but we're just focused on on those types of foods in order to, you know, really drill down and focus in on what we know um, is the most destructive to the planet and where we really want to help people shift away from. And so what we know from the data, which you asked about, is that the, the milk category is still by far um, the largest. It's been around the longest, you know, led by soy milk in the early days. And now almond milk has taken over um, from soy milk as a leader in um, the milk category. And But we're also seeing all kinds of, of other forms of milk come onto the market, like cashew milk and hemp milk. And one of our members makes flaxseed milk. And I mean, it's just such an exciting time for, you know, the milk category because it seems like there's no end to what um, folks can make milk out of, much to the milk lobby's chagrin. Um, but it's, you know, it's definitely a, still room to grow, put it that way, even though it's pretty well established. And then um, after that, I would say the, um, you know, a big, an exciting category is cheese alternatives. So, um, again, you know, there's just so many more good-tasting, innovative products available. And 
just like personally, um, I've certainly um, had soy and almond milk in my refrigerator for a long time, but wasn't a fan of, of the vegan cheeses um, until the last few years when things really started to shift in a, in a more positive direction, I think, in that sector. And again, led by both the companies that have been around that have kind of stepped up their game, but also by newer companies that have, that have come into the market. And then the third sector of meat alternatives, I think, you know, similar pattern. We've seen, um, you know, companies that that have been around are now showing up in, you know, mainstream supermarkets, like in my neighborhood Safeway. I can buy some of my favorite brands, which is pretty cool. I don't have to go schlep to Whole Foods, which for me is a bit farther away. Um, and then, um, you know, we're seeing, of course, new companies like Beyond Meat, uh, get into the meat department at, at my neighborhood Safeway. Um, and so, you know, I think just having those foods more widely available um, and being better tasting and, and innovative is, is really helping what's drive the growth in, in these sectors. Yeah. And what are, you know, I've, I've been um, noticing, obviously, the explosion in the last few years. I used to walk into a grocery store and uh, you'd look at the the non-dairy cheese aisle which would be maybe one or two options and now it has a whole section devoted to it uh in some grocery stores not everywhere um so maybe we can you know let's talk about that what are some of those challenges that the companies are facing in this space there's definitely interest we're seeing the uh natural food stores like whole foods starting to carry these products we have even um, the conventional retailers carrying the products and even the membership ones like Costco that are starting to be interested in some of these products. What are some of the retail level challenges? I know you mentioned uh, giving them enough shelf space Mm -hmm. or where it is located in the store is a crucial aspect. How is that I mean, how is that played into the work that you're doing? I know traditionally each company would go to the grocery store or the retailer and have that discussion and try to get better placement and, and kind of negotiate that. Have you played a role there? What's what's going on so far in your work? Yeah. Well, this is a project that's still under development. You know, I can't claim many big results yet because we're still just in year two and, and developing some materials right now to do some outreach with retailers and pulling together some additional data actually to make the case for why you know, retailers need to make more room on the shelf. And, um, you know, but I can say that, you know, the challenges that companies face, I mean, I think it's best illustrated by, um, as you mentioned earlier, going down the aisles at the huge natural um, product trade show where you see so many companies that are offering plant-based foods and particularly the companies offering all kinds of new varieties. So the companies that have been around a while, you know, say a company like Follow Your Heart, they have lots of cheeses, but now they've got a whole new line of yogurts. You know, same thing with a company like um, Upton's Naturals, which was for a while simply selling seitan. Now they have all kinds of jackfruit and other products available. So what I what strikes me is, you know, I see all this excitement, you know, and I get to try, of course, all these wonderful foods at the show. And then I go back to home to my neighborhood, say, for even Whole Foods, for that matter, and I don't see the same variety of products. You know, I certainly don't see the newer products, um, except maybe for one or two of the flavors. You know, and so I, I asked my members, so how come I see all these great products at Expo, but then I don't, you know, I only get to try them <laughs> twice a year. Um, and they say, well, because it's very difficult, you know, to have the conversation with the buyer, you know, again, to get everything that they would like to on the shelf. And so, 
you know, um, and of course there are all kinds of um, ways that the bigger food companies are able to maintain dominance in the supermarket, whether it's through slotting fees. You know, a lot of people don't realize that slotting fees play a big role, at least in the center aisles, with how companies are able to get certain placement on the shelf and, and so forth. And they kind of, you know, dominate a whole section of the aisle and so forth. So, you know, there's just... And, and also retailers, um, sadly, are mostly very slow to change. And so, uh, as another example, um, my companies tell me that they only get a sit-down, like a meeting with a retailer once a year. Once a year to talk about, you know, any new products, any changes in their product lines, etc. So, you know, imagine especially some of these fast-moving startups only getting a sit-down once a year and then having, you know, and then a few months later, you know, when they want to introduce something new, they have to wait nine more months to to get that meeting with the retailer to talk about their new product. So, you know, um, the, the slowness of retailers to, to have these meetings, to, to make changes um, in their entire setup in the supermarket is, is part of the challenge that we face at an industry-wide level. Yeah, and obviously it's very early on. I mean, your, your trade group hasn't been around for such a long time, but um, the fact that you're already starting to get into those conversations, it's, um, it's, it's a definitely a positive sign. Um, I think the other area that is, you know, I'm, I'm, obviously you have some efforts or at least are thinking about it is food service and to what extent we can try to encourage some of these plant-based options to be uh, served in corporate cafeterias as well as in universities. Is there any work planned or underway already um, tied to some of your member companies? Yes. Yeah, so food service is definitely an area that um, we recognize as really an undertapped opportunity. So, you know, almost all of our members are already in the retail environment, you know, have kind of gone down that path and, you know, still have a lot of work to do, of course, to, to grow in the retail sector. But um, only a smaller portion of our membership um, has tapped into food service. And I know that some are trying and others would like to. And so we're really trying to um, help guide them through that. So, you know, one of the things we do is simply conduct webinars for our members and get them more familiar with the sector. And so we've done that. And we've also um, built a um, pretty handy membership directory, a, a product directory on our website. So under the our members tab on our website of plantbasedfoods.org, uh, shameless plug, <laughs> you can find a pretty handy directory where you can search by a precise type of product. So it has all our members listed, but then you can actually search by like chicken alternative or ice cream alternative or that, you know, that drilled down. So we built that um, from some feedback we learned from folks who have experience in food service that often Food service directors are looking for specific types of products to, you know, replace on the menu in their recipes, et cetera, and that something like this would come in handy. So that's our first step towards doing outreach to food service directors. And, of course, anyone can use it that wants to look for um, a particular type of substitute or alternative. And then, um, and then our next step is we're actually putting some finishing touches right now on a, on a resource that we'll be putting out hopefully in September um, to help guide food service directors on, you know, what is this thing called plant-based? Why is it important? What are um, young people looking for? What does the data show about how, 
you know, um, college-aged students want. And we know that the data shows that more and more young people are seeking out, you know, sustainable foods and that they are willing to even pay more for them and so forth. So we're, um, you know, planning this resource um, as an outreach tool. But, of course, you know, we'll have to continue to do the, um, the outreach to food service to help them get educated about the types of foods that our members offer and, then of course, how to use them. And, you know, there are some other groups like the Humane Society that are doing great work in terms of um, trainings for college university dining services on, on how to incorporate more plant-based options on, you know, in the cafeteria. And so we will, you know, coordinate with them. And I think there's really um, the sky's the limit when it comes to particularly college university dining. I'm very excited about it because what we're hearing is just that students are really demanding these foods. And, you know, similar to the, the big CPG companies, that have to, you know, answer to that consumer demand, the food service directors on college campuses also cannot ignore this. And what we're hearing is long gone are the days when you just had a chef decide everything and kids just had to eat whatever was on the line. Yeah. Now the students are really the ones driving the menu options and food service directors, you know, and some of them get it and want to and are excited about offering more, um, you know, plant-based options. So, so yeah, I'm really excited about, about helping to shape that um, opportunity as well. Right. I mean, I, I, when I talked to John Mackey of Whole Foods, um, I asked him, what, is, what do you think is the one reason why uh, plant-based foods are trending upward? And I thought he was going to talk about health and uh, wellness. And he said, well, it's because it's hip. <laughs> that was a simple answer. And I think, you know, that's an important thing for anyone who's a food service director at a college or university to be thinking of. And and I know you pointed out this isn't just young people who are starting to eat this way, but I think we're finally at a point where the environmental message, the health message, the social impact, the animal welfare one are all coming together and appealing to a wide range of people um, yes. And they're just demanding better food. And be what's even better, of course, is that the food tastes great now, finally. Um, right. There were some of them that did, but a lot of them were just mediocre. But I think that's starting to change, too. Um, you know, of course, we can talk about the amazing growth in the space, as well as some of the potential challenges that companies are facing without touching on um, the big problem, which is policy. <laughs> And I think that's where you probably end up spending a lot of your time focused on. Can you, you know, I, I know we mentioned the Dairy Pride Act, and I'd love to get into that and explain that to people who may have never heard of that before. But generally, what are some of the big challenges in the short term, and what are the ones you foresee in the long term? We'll start with the short term ones first. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the big picture here is, of course, policy is a critical component to shaping the food environment. I mean, that's something that, you know, I spent my career explaining to people that um, it's not enough just to talk to people about how do you write their, their environment is completely t tied to our agricultural policies and a variety of food policies that unfortunately do not promote healthy eating. Um, and so how that relates specifically to the work I'm doing now is that, you know, the plant-based food companies, um, they face all kinds of challenges, many of which we've already talked about, but I'm particularly interested in those challenges that can be, you know, solved through policy or at least mitigated through some policy changes. And I'd say the short-term um, issue that we're facing is, is this labeling challenge, and this was the main 
um, the main driver for forming the association was this immediate um, issue that many companies face in that there really is little to no guidance from FDA on how many of these alternative type of products should be labeled. And so that's just a practical challenge that companies face. And then, of course, if they find themselves, um, like some companies have here in California, getting contacted by uh, a government official, then that raises the um, the alarm bells even further. So that's the short term. The longer term is addressing some of the um, pricing issues. So, you know, good example would be... Uh, a company like our, one of our board members is Tofurky, which makes um, meat alternatives. And, you know, they would love to be in, um, in um, school food, you know, the school lunch program, K-12. through And, um, but to be price competitive in, you know, a very price-sensitive environment is very challenging. And so, you know, how is it that Tyson and all the other, you know, big meat companies um, have no problem getting into K-12, but a company like Tofurky offering, you know, a viable alternative that we know is healthier, better for the planet, et cetera, um, really is challenged to do so. So, you know, obviously there are many policies that affect why meat is so cheap, including all of the inputs that go into meat production, you know, the corn that's fed to the animals, the, the water supply that companies get tax breaks on, and, you know, all the way down the line, meat and dairy the meat and dairy industries are subsidized in one way or another, often by our federal government. And, you know, it's a crazy messed up system that favors all the wrong kinds of food. So so that's, you know, obviously a big, very big picture challenge that we face that, um, you know, may take a little while to to get underneath, but it's something that is certainly important. Yeah. I mean, I spoke with David Simon, who wrote Meatonomics um, recently, and he you know, we we can we can try to make better products and more innovative products, but we're up against this system that is kind of designed to favor something um, that isn't going away anytime soon. So to shift that is going to require us to chip away at some of these ridiculous um, programs like the checkoff programs or other subsidies that exist that support uh, these industries that are destroying our planet and our health and um, making the end product cheaper than something that is undoubtedly better for you and the planet. Right. So uh, on the labeling issue specifically, I know that's one where you're very actively involved in right now. The We, we spoke about how the non-dairy beverage category has experienced some of the most um, rapid growth in the last several years and kind of leads the category of plant-based products. And the dairy industry seems to obviously have taken notice of it and it's starting to impact their bottom line. And in addition to advertising campaigns, targeting um, almond, soy, and other plant-based milks is not being real, they've now turned to um, the legislative or policy world to try to show their might against the plant-based industry. So can you explain what the issues are right now when it comes to labeling um, of non-dairy beverages as milk and why the dairy industry is up in arms about it? And kind of where do you see that playing out? Mm-hmm. So um, the Dairy Pride Act is a bill introduced in the Senate by Wisconsin, the true state of Wisconsin, Senator Tammy Baldwin, 
and um, a number of members of the House, so their companion bills. And that bill would um, not allow companies making, for example, soy milk or almond milk to use the word milk, but it's actually broader than that. So while this fight is being um, driven largely by the, the milk lobby, the um, the bill itself would address all non-dairy alternatives. So it would not allow a company making a cheese alternative to use the word cheese, wouldn't allow anyone making, you know, an, an ice cream type product to use the word ice cream. Um, so, you know, the milk lobby, for whatever reason, has decided to make um, the plant-based, you know, dairy alternative industry, uh, if you will, be a punching bag. And, you know, there's no question that there's been a market decline in fluid milk sales over many decades, certainly not caused by the rise of soy milk or almond milk because this decline started long before the rise of those products. So that's first thing. Um, but, you know, the milk lobby seems to just be grasping onto this as a way of having something to do. Honestly, I haven't quite figured out the logic of it because, and I've tried asking people, so what is the connection between, you know, how almond milk happens to be labeled and the economic health of a dairy farmer? Like, there is none that I can tell, and no one has been able to explain that to me. It appears to just be an emotional reaction to, you know, these other products that, obviously are getting traction, consumers are turning towards, and so, um, you know, the milk industry feels threatened by this and is just sort of glomming on to this as a way to um, do something. Um, yeah, so, you know, this would have pretty serious consequences, especially for products that have been on the market a long time using the word milk. I mean, soy milk certainly has been around for decades. And, um, you know, and then it would also just cut off any conversation from our industry members to be able to figure out, okay, well, how could we use these words in a way that certainly doesn't, you know, um, confuse consumers or, or mean to um, trick anyone into thinking they're buying, you know, a cow's milk product. I mean, this is what's so ridiculous about it. I mean, far from wanting consumers to think they're selling a dairy product, these companies are specifically reaching consumers who are looking for the alternatives right. to dairy. And so, you know, um, so there it is. This is what the <laughs> milk lobby has decided to glom onto, and this is what we're fighting. Um, and so what we're doing instead, or as we're fighting this, I should say, in parallel, is PBFA has formed a, um, a standards committee, which is doing an internal process right now to help figure out, well, what is the best way to label particularly milk products. We're starting with the milk category. We know we need to go on to the others eventually, but starting with um, the milk category, how can we come up with a more consistent, uniform way of labeling these products so that, you know, the FDA is satisfied and, and we're sure, absolutely sure as we can be, that we're not causing any confusion for consumers. Right. You know, I started my career actually as an intellectual property lawyer focusing on copyright and trademark law. And while I haven't practiced law in about 15 years, I'm fairly familiar with the standard of consumer confusion. And it would uh, really surprise me to find out that consumers are going and buying almond milk thinking that that is milk from a cow. Um, like you rightfully pointed out, I think consumers are 
actively looking for non-dairy beverages or alternatives to milk from a cow. So the fact that the dairy industry would even claim that they're being confused is just absurd to me. And the, the danger there is it's starting to bleed into other areas of food. And I believe the rice lobby, for example, is now con- concerned about cauliflower rice and that being uh, adding to the confusion in the marketplace. Right. So, Michelle, where do you think all of this is going to end up? Uh, if you even look at the FDA's definition of milk, wouldn't it also restrict goat milk as being labeled as milk? Since uh, I believe the definition implies that milk only comes from a cow? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, and what's interesting about that, I mean, it's kind of silly, but the um, the Dairy Pride Act, the, the goat people seem to have gotten together with the cow people, and uh, because the Dairy Pride Act would change the definition of milk to encompass what they call hooved animals, so I guess goat milk would then get a pass under the new okay. definition if, if that law yeah. were to be enacted. Yeah, but um, yeah, it is rather silly, and... and so now what what the milk lobby is sort of shifted to, I mean, they, they recognize the silliness. They've been beat up enough in the press. And I will say that the Dairy Pride Act has been actually a gift to, to us at the association because um, we've gotten great press around it, and I'm pretty good with media. I've got lots of media contacts on my, you know, two decades in the field. And so, um, you know, we've been able to take full advantage of, of this as a good media op, and that has actually brought us some um, you know, potential members and so forth. So, you know, in some ways I'm, I'm grateful to the milk lobby for, for handing us this gift and they're getting beat up in the press over it. So I don't know why they keep pursuing it, but, um, but, you know, uh, the, the, the point is that it's still, you know, it just because it's silly doesn't mean it can't pass. And right. so where they're going now with the argument is um, is around nutrition. So, you know, that, oh, well, okay, maybe people aren't confused, but, you know, as if cow's milk is like the standard bearer for good nutrition, um, that there's some kind of crisis being caused by people shifting away from, from cow's milk to, to soy and almond milk, which is just ridiculous. I mean, you know, people are fine knowing there's no nutrition crisis due to the decline of, of fluid milk sales, Yeah, you know? So, um, but yeah, that's just, you know, all they have to like try and make this kind of desperate argument. Yeah. And you know, I, if there happens to be anyone from the dairy industry who's listening to this, I would, uh, I have a recommendation that's just my recommendation, um, is that you put some of that money, into investing in companies that are producing um, non-dairy alternatives to milk, non-dairy beverages, or invest in your own R&D and development of products in that space. Uh, What's interesting is the meat industry seems to be doing that, but the dairy industry is still kind of holding on to this idea that that, um, plant-based milks or non-dairy beverages are the enemy, when in fact, you know, at the end of the day, we know it's all about money. Right, right. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, and, you know, there's one company that is doing exactly that. If you've heard of them, um, they're in New York, actually, a company called Elmhurst. Yes. How uh, they've shifted, you know, they were a hundred-some-year-old dairy, and um, and then the last couple of years they shifted away from that completely to becoming a nut milk company. So I think it's it's a fantastic story of, you know, 
a company realizing they saw the handwriting on the wall and didn't want to, you know, just go out of business. They took the opportunity to to shift towards where consumers are heading. So, um, and I agree, if we had more of that, then, you know, and I'd like to see, you know, um, dairy farmers, for that matter. And we, there have been a couple of examples of this in the press. Um, last year, there was a story about some dairy farmers in California who were shifting towards yeah. almond groves. Of course, almonds being a major crop here in California and also a big dairy state. So um, perhaps we'll be seeing more of that sort of thing, and that that would be a really positive outcome for everyone. You know, I certainly have sympathy for dairy farmers that are losing money. I mean, it's it's you know it's terrible, and there's lots of complicated reasons for it. Of course, not um, the least of which is the rise of soy and almond. But um, you know, the extent that dairy farmers can make that transition, and it's not an easy thing to do, I realize. But um, if if the federal government could find ways to support dairy farmers. And this is something, you know, we might take a look at um, policy-wise. How can we support dairy farmers and meat producers, for that matter, to end, you know, farmers of all the food that goes to feed animals instead of people? You know, how can we shift our government policies in a way to support farmers to grow food that feeds humans in a sustainable way? I mean, it's pretty basic, and yet um. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I think um, that that's a point that isn't brought up often enough. It always seems like we're dismissing it as being something silly and they're attacking this the, the small and growing plant-based food industry. But what really is needed is a meaningful discussion about the future of food. I mean, at the end of the day, if you want this to work, we're not I don't think I don't think you and I or people in the plant-based food space are anti-farmers at the end of the day. I think we I think the conversation needs to shift from them being threatened to, okay, how can we redesign the system to work in a way that sustains everyone that is part of it and also that is able to produce food in a way that can feed our growing population in the next several years. So that, I think, increasingly just has to move away from a debate to a discussion where we can figure out how um, we can craft some real plans, but I I don't see that happening right now. But hopefully it'll it'll happen in a couple of years as people start to see that um, there is we have to do something to change our food system and right. uh, ignoring the problem or uh, trying to squash the new up and coming startups is not going to be a viable or sustainable solution. Right. right, and and it's not just that we're you know not anti farmer. It's that you know our companies are part of the agricultural system as well. You know, the meat and dairy industries want it to be as if they own agriculture. (laughs) You know, when, where where does tofu come from but soybeans from from the earth, you know? And so we're trying to really get this conversation shifted in a way that says we, you know, we, our companies are providing an economic opportunity for farmers. You know, they're just farmers that are growing wheat and soybean and other inputs to these types of meat and dairy alternatives, you know, almonds, of course, huge um, crop here in California. So, you know, and yes, how can we help create more of those opportunities for farmers, many of whom are struggling and don't want to keep doing business as usual. So I think there's tremendous opportunity there. Just shifting our agricultural policies is definitely um, a challenge, but I think over time, um, the the consumer demand will help make that shift happen. 
Right. And that back to your old point, you need everything you need uh, to support the industry and try to get their products in the right shelves in retailers. You have to get those foods into um, the food service, um, get them into university cafeterias as well as in corporate cafeterias. You have to change government policies. You have to educate the public about why they should be choosing plant-based often, if not all the time. And all of this hopefully will come together into finally, I, I always say this though, the wheels of our policy system change last and they move slowly, but they're the but they follow where the consumer demand goes and they follow where the industry goes. And eventually it's only a matter of time before um, we, we make enough momentum here in the positive direction where they have no option but to wake up and say, oh, wait a minute, this is happening and we can't ignore it anymore. Let's just uh, figure out how we can be a part of it and support it. Right. I'd love to get your thoughts on what advice you would give to um, wannabe plant-based food entrepreneur. Um, this is obviously a hot and growing space, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are, are thinking, wait a minute, I want to be part of this. I, I feel strongly that this is the passion I have, and I want to hopefully be a part of this growing movement that's, um, that's going to redefine the future of our food system. What, what advice would you give them, of course, firstly, become a member of the Plant-Based Foods Association if you're starting a company in this space. But beyond that, what are the things they should and shouldn't, what, what are the things they should avoid and what are the things that they should look out for when it comes for opportunities as well as challenges? Mm-hmm. Well, what I try to um, advocate for is, is, a, is a bigger um, approach to how to get involved. So, yes, yeah, starting a company, being an entrepreneur is one potentially very exciting and impactful way to to get involved in, in plant-based foods. And, um, you know, if you're someone who has a great idea for a new product that fills a niche, you know, and, and you have the right um, skill set to start a company and you've got connections for capital, you know, then go for it. Um, I say do that, though, with your eyes wide open because there's a lot of challenges to, to starting a new business. And, um, you know, I, I think people who do it have, uh, I'm, I'm just so impressed by anyone who's willing to start a business from scratch. I mean, I started a nonprofit from scratch, but you know, had some help. Um, so I would just say to go in with your eyes wide open and really talk to other people who've, who've been there. And obviously at the association, we can always help connect people to, to folks who can um, give that experience. And um, so that's that. There's you know, that potential opportunity. I'd say there's also... Um, you know, I don't want to say false hope, but there's a lot of money flying around right now from investment firms because of the excitement around plant-based and, and to some extent that's a good thing. Um, but you know, there's some pitfalls to that as well. And I just think, um, you know, people need to not necessarily think that, oh, because there's, you know, all this money coming like from Silicon Valley that, you know, Starting a new business is the way to go. Like mm-hmm. there, there's still many challenges, and doesn't mean that your company is going to be the one to get all that money, and doesn't mean that getting a lot of money is necessarily a guarantee to success. So, you know, I just think there's a lot of reality checks that should go into the thought process of starting a new business. Then there's all kinds of other ways to get involved. So, you know, my orientation, of course, being policy work, and we need a lot more um, help when it comes to experts in 
the law and policy and, you know, even supporting um, the companies in, in other ways. So, like, we have an affiliate membership of, of businesses that provide marketing services and, you know, we need experts in retail and food service and all the areas that we've been talking about. So I would say, you know, if you want to get involved in promoting the plant-based foods industry, don't just think about starting a business, but think about how you can support the companies that have businesses. And um, there's no shortage of ways that the industry needs that support. So just think about, you know, what skill set do you have? What What's your passion? What can you really bring to the table in a way that can can be supportive? And of course, there's just being a, being an advocate and and um, good citizen, and you know, telling your member of Congress not to support the Dairy Pride Act and to support a better farm bill to more uh, you know promote more plant based food. So there's just that very basic level of, of political engagement as well that we need. Yeah, I love that advice. That's great. Just use your skills and and combine that with uh, the passion for this emerging food space and see how you can kind of find that place where it works together. That's um, that's the only thing that actually, I think, ends up working in people's favor if you do that. Um, unless, of course, you've got billions of dollars lying around. <laughs> then by all means, do whatever you want to do with it. So, um, right. you know, I'd love to kind of close on the note of um, how do you see this? Um, where do you see this headed? I mean, if the things that you're working on, I ask this question of all my guests um, generally, that if the work that you're doing now turns out the way you expect it to, if this industry continues to grow, your membership goes from 80, 100 members that you have right now to and grows to thousands and you're able to bring about the um, change at both the retail level, food service level, as well as the policy level, and, and also help educate consumers on the benefits of these foods and give rise to this new ecosystem of companies that are changing our food system. What kind of world would you ideally like to see, say, in the year 2050? You've been fighting for years now for a um, better food system. I'm sure you've envisioned what that would look like. Um, can you tell me, paint that picture for me? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think you you actually did a good job of just kind of painting what the environment shift could look like. I think at the end of the day, though, we need to look at impact as well. So, you know, it's one thing to put a lot more foods out there on, on, the, on the shelf and to have menus shift in a way that we know they need to. But at the end of the day, you know, is that what's the impact on humanity, right? So I'm always interested in, okay, how can we measure potential impact in terms of people's diets or people truly moving away from um, a meat-centered diet? Are they more healthy, you know? Are people experiencing less heart disease and cancer in the population? And then, of course, there's the environmental impacts. You know, we know we need to slow down the scary trends around climate change. And, you know, one important way to do that, of course, is to shift away from intensive animal agriculture. So what's the impact there? And then, um, of course, on the animals. I mean, once we reduce the number of animals that are are fed to humans for food, then we can impact those other aspects. So, you know, I'm I'm hopeful, um, but, you know, those are big challenges. And so I'll, I'll be happy when I see um, real shifts happening in people's daily lives and in the health of our planet. 
You know, I have to thank you for your foresight in terms of even setting up the Plant-Based Foods Association very early in this process where the industry is just starting to grow and become a real thing. Even a few years ago, people would have probably laughed at the idea of setting up a trade association dedicated to companies producing plant-based foods. But today, it's not a crazy idea. It's a very real thing. And thanks to the work that you're doing and the work that your member companies are doing, we can hopefully end up in a place 30 years from now where we've created a food system that is dominated by companies and products that are not only good for our health, but are also uh going to help restore our uh, damaged ecosystems and put us in a better place environmentally. So I really appreciate you taking the time today to tell us more about the Plant-Based Foods Association. I would highly encourage listeners of the show to check out um, your website. Uh, what's the URL again? Plantbasedfoods.org. I, li- I think the, the website, what you've done there, has really created a, a great hub of uh, companies in this space. It's very easy to figure out who's involved. What are the new brands? Because it seems like every other week, at least we get pitched by a new brand selling a new product. So mm-hmm. it's nice to see a little repository, a little hub where you can reference who's in the play, who's in the space and what, what kind of products do they offer. So um, thank you for doing the work that you're doing and for the, the time today. I really appreciate it. And I wish you and your member companies all the success. We need all the help. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. I appreciate the opportunity. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening.